This is Epicenter Bitcoin, episode 101, with guests Ryan Shea and Munib Ali. Episode of Epicenter Bitcoin is brought to you by Ledger, makers of the unplugged NFC hardware wallet. Have peace of mind in knowing your private keys are protected by industry standard physical security. Go to ledgerwallet.com and use the offer code Epicenter to get 10% off your first order. And by Hide.me, protect yourself against hackers and safeguard your identity online with a first-class VPN. Go to hide.me/epicenter and sign up for a free account today. Hi, welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. My name is Sebastian Couture. And I'm Meher Roy. Today we have Ryan Shea and Muneeb Ali, who are, who are co-founders of OneName. We'll be talking about naming system, blockchain IDs, distributed hash tables, probabilistic identity and other interesting themes. Gentlemen, we are very pleased to have you on the show. Thank you for having us. So let's start off with the with the basic questions. Uh, could you tell us a bit about your backgrounds? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so my background is uh, basically in distributed systems. I'm a final year PhD candidate at uh, Princeton, even though for the last two years, I'm basically working on one name and uh, I haven't really done much uh, work towards the thesis. Uh, so yeah, so mostly I've been working in distributed systems that involves like large-scale storage systems or um, data centers and uh, wireless networks. Uh, so hi, yeah, I'm Ryan, and uh, my background is in computer science and mechanical and aerospace engineering. I studied that when I was at Princeton. That's where Minib and I actually met. And I worked at a few uh, companies uh, in the tech startup world, like ZocDoc, for example. And uh, we, Munib and I actually started uh, working together after being in New York for a few years and decided that we wanted to work on something. Cool. So, um, like with, 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 with OneName, we have different projects like Blockstore, Blockchain ID, etc. Could you give us an overview of your, of your big picture vision? For, for one name and how all of these projects connect together with that vision. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. So w one of the things that I like that when talking about the grand vision, like if you go back to the late 90s, or uh, you would see that the internet used to be a much more decentralized place. Like people would go visit websites that are hosted on like different servers, different hosting providers. And in the last like 10 to 15 years, one thing that has happened is that it's becoming more and more centralized in the sense that everything, all forms of communication are going through certain uh, central companies like Google, Facebook, are, um, and most of user data is actually also with these companies. So uh, one, of, one of the things that really excites us to work on this technology is the potential to kind of like re-decentralize the internet, give the power back to the people 
and so that everyone who's using internet services online doesn't have to rely on certain critical uh, massive third parties in the middle. Yeah, and then building off of that, uh, the other component is being able to give users the ability to bring their identities with them when they log in online and giving them, putting them in control and putting them at the center of their relationship with any application so that when they sign up for an app, they don't need to actually rely on Facebook or Google or any other company. And they can also have a really, really good experience that is convenient, doesn't require passwords. And uh, so that these users can bring an ID with them, a very strong verified ID with them uh, anywhere they go. So in, in real life, we have that we have a really uh, a pretty good uh, equivalent, uh, a pretty good identification system uh, in that we have passports, we have driver's licenses, and we can uh, take them with us whenever we want to sign up for services. We don't have a very strong system for that uh, in the web on the line. And so we want to be able to bring that to users and bring that to people uh, in a way that they are in complete control and they can be in control of their privacy, their security, and uh, the companies that they interact with. Mm-hmm. So uh, we can we can drive right into the technicals of how how you will go about this vision, and perhaps it's best we start with the idea of a naming system because that plays a central role. Uh, could you explain what exactly is a naming system, and what are the properties we look for in one? Yes, sure. So uh, at the heart of it, I think a naming system is something very simple. It's just either a human readable or a non-human readable by that. I mean, it's just a very long string of characters. Uh, And that name is attached to either identify uh, an object. That object could be a person or a router or a computer or any other resource online, right? If you look at the history of naming systems, the most famous naming system, I would say, would be DNS, the domain name system. And it, it started off, funnily enough, as a text file. So people used to have these like hosts.txt files in their computers. And let's say I wanted to talk to a computer at UCLA, uh, that name of, of the computer would map to a, an IP address. And if for some reason that IP address would change, people would manually, like literally manually, open that text file and update it. And, and slowly that uh, became uh, not scalable as the internet kept growing. And people came up with the notion of uh, domain name system, which is a hierarchical system. There are root servers who have final say over what is the mapping. That let's say CNN.com maps to a certain IP address. And then there are lots and lots of other servers that sync up to the root server and provide uh, this mapping to users. And, and there are all sorts of like different naming systems. I'll just quickly give you two examples. Uh, one was a project came out of MIT in like 2000, early 2000. It, it's called, it was called INS, like Intentional Naming System. So the idea over there was that instead of explicitly naming objects, you would just sp- specify your intent. So you would say, hey, what's the nearest printer to me? So you don't, don't know what is the name of that printer, but you just care about that it should be the nearest printer. And INS would resolve that to an IP address. And you can then go and talk to that, that printer. Uh, and s- similarly, around the same time, another type of naming system that came up was self-certifying names. And over there, uh, they, they're not human readable. They're very long. But they have the property that the, 
the proof that you own the name is actually embedded in the name itself. IPFS actually uses a, vari a variation of, of this today. Um, so yeah, so naming systems have been around for a very long time. They're a core part of you know, the internet architecture and, 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 the, and the security of it as well. And um, I think I'll let Ryan explain uh, how blockchains come in and how you can also do naming um, on the blockchain as well. Yeah, I just had a follow-up question before we talk about the blockchain. Why, in, why is it that uh, when these naming systems that we use so frequently, like DNS, for instance, uh, started to sort of come out of the growth of the internet, uh, the internet being decentralized as it was, uh, or much more decentralized than it is today, uh, why is it that the, those services and those servers became central authorities for naming online? Uh, so I would say that there are two two parts to that answer. Uh, one is technical; that it's actually very hard to build um, a decentralized naming system that has uh, human readable names. So this 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 thing uh, is actually called Zuku's triangle, and that basically says that. If you want these three properties in a naming system, you can only pick two. Like you could either pick decentralization, or uh, you could pick like uh, the names to be human readable. So I think that that was the technical limitation that it was very hard to build a human readable decentralized naming system. And the other part would be political, that uh, the internet infrastructure was was perceived as something extremely important and uh, certain institutions wanted to retain control over how uh, naming online would be done and it took a while to like kind of like decentralize that and, and DNS is way more decentralized now than it used to be like 10 years back or 20 years back. So then how do we take that back and decentralize these naming systems? So I guess what you're saying now is that we can now have naming systems that satisfy all three components of uh, Zuku's triangle. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. Actually, the first example of this was Namecoin, which came out uh, it was the, the first fork of Bitcoin. I think it was uh, 2011, um, maybe late 2010. And uh, Namecoin was a fork of Bitcoin that added on a naming system on top of the existing functionality of the Bitcoin blockchain. And it was uh, actually built as a generic key value store, uh, which means that you can uh, pick any uh, character string that you want, and it would be the key. And then it would, you would associate uh, a value with it, which would be up to 520 bytes. That would actually go directly into the Namecoin blockchain. And uh, Namecoin started out actually uh, trying to provide an alternative for the domain name system uh, on the blockchain in a completely decentralized way. So as long as you have <clears throat> a copy of the blockchain, you can trust, uh, you can resolve all of the names and you can actually trust that the data that's associated with it uh, is uh, being resolved correctly and you can trust that it's actually being owned and updated by the correct cryptographic identity, um, which is not a guarantee that you have uh, with, uh, with the domain name system unless you're using um, SSL and uh, and in the case of uh, TXT records, you're using something like um, DKIM with Dane. Uh, so uh, so the 
when when Namecoin actually came out, it was able to provide this uh, very secure decentralized naming, where all you had to do was run your own co copy of the blockchain. Um, and then actually, uh, we started working on a, another uh, version of this, which was called it's called Blockstore, and we'll get into that later. But it's basically running on top of the Bitcoin blockchain and providing decentralized naming in the same way, but you just have to run your own Bitcoin node. So, uh, so maybe I could summarize uh, summarize the conversation uh, up to now. So, what you are saying essentially is the central problem of naming is to have a directory where you have uh, human memorable names like Amazon.com mapping to some something that is uh, not human memorable like a, like an IP address. A naming system is basically this directory. Until this day, uh, the reason these directories needed to be centralized is that it was hard to have a naming system that was decentralized, human memorable, so the names would be like Amazon.com that humans can remember, and also secure that once there is a, a particular Amazon.com, there cannot be another guy masquerading as Amazon.com. And the fundamental contribution of Namecoin was they showed that you could have a system that is decentralized, secure, and human meaningful, and they use it to build the dot bit uh, to, to build the dot bit uh, naming system for websites, correct? Yeah, that's correct. It was actually based on, a, or at least they think, it was based on a post by Aaron Schwartz. Uh, and actually the first prototype of Namecoin was, came out a few months later. Now, so what are some of the challenges then to uh, having a decentralized naming system as opposed to a centralized one? So I think it all goes back to a consensus that if let's say uh, you have a global system, let's, let's say there, we have one user in Australia, one in Japan, one in the US, and we all want to agree that the state of the namespace is something, right? Like then it, it starts going into like classic uh, consensus protocols in computer science that how do all of these parties agree uh, without having any central trusted party in the middle that basically gets to decide that what is the state of the namespace. Right. And this, so Namecoin was able to build on, uh, because the, uh, so as Ryan said, it's a fork of, of Bitcoin. Uh, the Bitcoin solved the decentralized consensus problem uh, by using the blockchain, right? And they did it for being able to send uh, money from, you know, one party to another. But, but the central problem that they solved of decentralized consensus is actually a very hard computer science problem. And once you have a solution to that, you can actually start building other other services on top. And a name a naming system is like one example. So regarding one name specifically, so one name, we'll we'll explain exactly what what one name is as a company and what they're doing uh, a bit later on the show. But first, uh, one name was using Namecoin as a protocol to power its naming system, and you transitioned into to using now Bitcoin. Can you give us some insights to why you decided to do that? Right. Uh, so first of all, before I, I go more into the experiences we have had on Namecoin, I, I want to give a shout out to all the Namecoin developers. Like they have done a lot of hard work over the years and in uh, keeping Namecoin running. Like it's it's one of the oldest forks of Bitcoin and it's still running, still functional. Um, you can use it live, but uh, after having said that, we were one of the largest production systems built on top of Namecoin. 
and we started uh, noticing certain limitations. Like for example, uh, their pricing rules were baked in at launch and uh, it was very, very cheap to just buy an, a name and the, and the pricing algorithm wasn't very sophisticated, right? So as a result, uh, there's a lot of, of um, spam registrations on Namecoin. I think there is a paper that came out by Arvind, who's a professor at, at Princeton. And then they analyzed that how much spam registrations there are. And I think the results were really surprising that like, I think less than 1% names on the .bit namespace currently actually uh, map to anything meaningful. Uh, so that was one. The other was uh, that because Namecoin was uh, an old fork and they didn't keep up with the, all the development that was happening with Bitcoin, the software was generally lacking stability as compared to Bitcoin. And the ecosystem of like how many developers are working on Namecoin was much smaller than the number of developers working on, on Bitcoin. Right? Like there are so many different companies, there are so many different like profile explorers or APIs. So just from an engineering perspective, it makes more sense to be part of an ecosystem that is uh, well-maintained and getting rapidly developed. And the third was actually a security issue uh, where it turns out that Namecoin does merged mining uh, with Bitcoin. So some, some miners would basically mine both cryptocurrencies because it's the same hash that they're calculating and they can get rewarded on two different chains. Um, but it, it turns out that merged mining is actually pretty hard because if the miner doesn't have that much incentive, let's say the value of the currency isn't that much or the overhead required for them to actually run uh, Namecoin D nodes and integrate merged mining, is, is they feel like it's not worth it to them uh, given the reward that they're getting. So practically what ended up happening was that uh, one miner, uh, F2 pool, has consistently been, uh, they have more than like 60% hashing power on Namecoin. And it's a known fact, like, you know, the Namecoin community knows about it and they're trying to address the problem. But uh, for us, it, uh, it was, it seems like if, if you are on the main Bitcoin blockchain, the amount of financial infrastructure and financial capital that is uh, linked to the security of the blockchain is a lot more. So a lot more people care if a single miner approaches 51% mining power and there's a lot of like people would try to do something about it. Whereas in the case of Namecoin, this has been going on for many months and so far the community has not been able to uh, take any measures about it. Let's take a short break so I can take you to Paris. I walked into La Maison du Bitcoin, the house of Bitcoin, in the heart of Silicon Sentier, home to many startups, including Ledger. And I spoke with Eric Larchevêque, Ledger's CEO, about the all-new unplugged NFC hardware wallet. The Ledger Unplugged is a NFC-based hardware wallet that you can use with compatible Android phones. The private keys are stored in a secure element and you can use them with wallets such as Mycelium and Gridbits. Each time you want to make a transaction, the signature will be done by the Unplugged, and this way your private keys, this critical data, will never be exposed to the Android phone. This is a secure way to use your Bitcoins on the go, in mobility, and you will also be able to pay directly with the Unplugged with compatible point-of-sale terminals. The Ledger Unplugged is the simple solution for secure, contactless Bitcoin payments. You can get the Unplugged at ledgerwallet.com, and when you use the code EPICENTER at checkout, you'll get 10% off your order. And by the way, that code works on their entire range of products. 
So we'd like to thank Ledger for their support of Epicenter Bitcoin. Yeah, before we go, go into the details of the transition between uh, Namecoin to Bitcoin, let's let's go a bit into how your um, identity system worked on Namecoin. So as, as we understand it, uh, just like DNS maps names like Amazon.com to IP addresses, what 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 I gathered is you were trying to do something where uh, there's a name like my name Meher Roy, and that should map to a, a a public key. So once I have a mapping from my name to my public key, I can I can sign a document and and say that that is that is Meher. So given that you were trying to build this sort of directory of uh, names on on Namecoin, how how did it actually work? Where did you put the data and uh, what kind of transactions on Namecoin did you use? Well, it, yeah, it actually works a little bit differently um, in that just like in, in DNS, you're mapping a name to a zone file and the zone file has instructions for how to resolve the name, which can be an IP address, but it can also be uh, a C name to another URL, for example. Um, and in Namecoin, it actually uh, ended up working the same, uh, the same way where a name would be mapped to a static uh, piece of data, uh, not, just, not just a public key, because if you mapped it to a public key, then uh, there could, the public key could t- continuously sign different messages and replace them. Um, but in the case of, in the, in the case of Namecoin, uh, there's an actual latest record that is associated with it. And uh, the same thing uh, works in our new system that we're building on top of Bitcoin called Blockstore. So um, you can actually put information inside of that uh, piece of data uh, that helps to instruct the client how to resolve the name. And uh, we've been focused on user identities. So with user identities, we have information about the user's identity, about the user's profile, like their name, their what their profile image is, etc. And we're actually moving to a system where it's uh, it's closer to the zone file example, where the actual identity information is not uh, what is attached to the name, but it is uh, a recipe for how to get that additional identity information. So you first resolve the name to the zone file. The zone file tells you where to find the rest of the profile information, and then you go and grab it and reconstruct the profile, and you can present it either as raw data or you can present it in a nice way uh, like we do on OneName.com. And so this is uh, blockchain ID, right? Yes. Every every identity that's registered at OneName.com on Blockstore, um, and w- which we used to use Namecoin for, is a blockchain ID. Okay, so uh, a, a blockchain ID is a schema. It's a it's a standard schema, a document format. It's written in JSON, which describes an identity, and that you link, uh, that you attach to a a Bitcoin transaction. Yes, that's correct. Okay, can you can you exp- so I gave a, a short introduction to, to blockchain ID. Can you give us more details about how that works and um, what what types of identities you can register on blockchain ID? So we haven't really talked about this, but I mean. There are domain names. There's also personal identities. Uh, you could have like business identities. Uh, perhaps, perhaps let's go into that first, and then we can talk about uh, blockchain ID. So I can I can uh, tell you like how the registration process works. So let's let's start with Namecoin. So Namecoin basically introduced a bunch of new uh, operations to uh, when they forked Bitcoin. 
they added a bunch of new name operations to the core code. And the first one is that, let's say, uh, on name kind of was called name new. So you are trying to register a new username and you don't want to tell people what that name is. Because remember, this is a decentralized system, right? So if let's say you try to announce that I'm trying to register my name Muneeb, someone can actually try to register that name before you. So the way Namecoin uh, works is, and, and we did the same thing with Blockstore as well, that you first announce that, hey, I'm trying to register something, here's a hash. And once that transaction gets enough confirmations on the network, like everyone has confirmed that this transaction went through, and we agree that you're trying to register something. Then you reveal that that hash was actually my username, Muneeb. Right. And then after that, you can do name update operations, which are basically, if you think of this as a key value, the key is the username and the value is the data, whatever record data you want to associate with that. So you can like keep updating the, the value part as long as you're still in possession of the private, the private key that owns uh, that, that, that username and, and the associate data. So a very similar process works um, on Blockstore as well. The difference is that now instead of uh, Namecoin addresses, it's Bitcoin addresses that own uh, the key value pairs. So, so basically, let's go into what is exactly happening when I'm registering my, my name. So am I right in assuming that when I register, let's say my name is Meher Roy, what I'm registering on the Bitcoin blockchain is something like you slash Meher Roy, is, is it like that? So that was the case on Namecoin. So the difference between uh, Blockstore and Namecoin is Namecoin built all of that functionality right into the blockchain itself, right? So it, they were also using the blockchain as a data store. So whatever data you were associating with your name was literally announced in the blockchain and the data, everyone would have a copy of that, which is like, we, it, it is not very scalable in the sense of like, if you're thinking about like tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people using this, right? Because every single person who's running uh, a Namecoin D node needs to keep a copy of that. Uh, so with with Blockstore, what we have done is that uh, we, we are using the Bitcoin blockchain just for announcing transactions and getting a total ordering on uh, those transactions. So what we care about is that there should be a global view that you registered that name in a transaction before, let's say, I was trying to register the same name, right? So this is where the consensus part comes in. Once you have consensus and the Bitcoin blockchain gives you that, you can actually pop up a layer and that layer, what we're calling it a virtual chain. And in the virtual chain, uh, your client can actually process these transactions and construct a view of the namespace, right? So it's it's basically the clients have a, a, a consistent view of what the namespace is after they have processed the, tra the transactions which were announced in, on Bitcoin. So Bitcoin uh, is actually completely agnostic of this protocol running on, on top of it. We can actually replace B Bitcoin with some other blockchain. Let's say like 20 years from now, it happens that Bitcoin didn't take off and there was some other currency. With this design, you can actually mi migrate from Bitcoin to something else as well, just like we migrated from Namecoin to Bitcoin. Our argument is that you need to be on the most secure blockchain and only depend on the blockchain for giving you consensus. Once you have consensus, you can actually build the protocol at a layer uh, above it. 
So am I right in assuming that uh, block store, the block store protocol has to parse the entire blockchain and look for uh, identities that are stored in transactions? Yeah, it, it actually scans through the entire blockchain in sequence. And your node has a certain rule set that interprets the transactions in a certain way. And as long as they are uh, abiding by the rules and that, you know, for example, there's an operation that didn't try to register a name after another operation tried to register that same name, then it will be accepted. Otherwise, it would be rejected if it was conflicting with one of the either syntax rules or ordering rules. Um, and uh, to go back to actually what uh, you said before uh, about namespaces, um, if you were to register a Meher Roy on, uh, on, for example, a namespace where you wanted to get your own identity, your personal identity, uh, what you do is you'd register it in a particular namespace. Uh, we started this namespace, it's .id, so it's pretty similar to the uh, u slash system or d slash uh, system on, on Namecoin. Uh, so in Namecoin, there were namespaces uh, that were distinguished by a letter followed by a slash. On Blockstore, there are namespaces that can be instantiated with new rules. And these rules uh, are like the date until expiration, the price of the names in the namespace. So we started a namespace called .id, and in that if you register a name in that namespace, then that is your username of sorts. And that information can be associated with your identity information. And that is actually what, so now that we're on, we've moved from Namecoin to Bitcoin, the, uh, our one name service, when you register a name by signing up, you'd actually get it registered on that namespace on top of Blockstore. And that would be sent out as a Bitcoin transaction. So what's happening here is when I'm registering my name, so I go to onename.com and I want to register Meheroy. So what my client essentially is doing is it's saying uh, the name you want to register is meherroy.id because that's the namespace uh, uh, you're using currently. And then it wants to associate meherroy.id to some file that that will allow another person who wants to see that file to locate information corresponding to meherroy.id, right? Yes, that's correct. So uh, basically, like I'll make one distinction that one name, uh, the company, you can think of it as, you know, just like there's GoDaddy or Namecheap and they, uh, you can go and buy a domain name through them. So the system, the naming system that we have described is like something like DNS. You can actually have DNS-like domains and you can create a new namespace and have like other types of uh, uh, names registered there as well. So one name, the company, when you're actually coming there and trying to register a username, we are uh, acting as a registrar, right? So we first register the name on your behalf and then transfer it to the, the private key and Bitcoin address that you own. Right, so it's 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 we are only acting as a registrar in the middle. Today's magic word is name, N A M E. Head over to letstalkbitcoin.com to sign in, enter the magic word, and claim your part of the listener reward. So 
the the data is actually being stored so so what what are the kinds of data we need to store we need to store the name which is meherroy.id and we need to store some kind of file that uh, people can use to look up identity information regarding meherroy and all of this information is packaged how is it packaged into the bitcoin blockchain do you use op return transactions or yes so, so uh, remember uh, on namecoin I, I said that they were basically broadcasting information on the key and also the value in the blockchain itself right but what we're doing is we're using just standard op return transactions right so it uh, it gives us a limited space like between 40 bytes and 80 bytes uh, to basically broadcast our protocol transaction and they will include uh, like the, whatever name operations you were doing on your on your username and then they will basically include the hash of the data that is the value right and and that's where the external data stores come in that once the, we're using the bitcoin blockchain for securely mapping your your usernames to a hash of whatever the data is that you want to associate with it and then you can go and fetch that data from anywhere hash it and check if the hash matches right and with block store we have a default uh, dht built in that acts as the default storage system right now and uh, if you're doing a lookup, you will basically, how it's broken down is first you're doing a lookup using the blockchain information to get the mapping between the name and the hash. Then you're doing a lookup on the DHT to map the hash to the actual data uh, that it corresponds to. And that, that's a really nice separation because now you can start plugging in any different types of uh, data stores. So we have uh, ongoing work, I think we have already rolled out uh, an integration with uh, Amazon S3, and we are working on an integration with IPFS. Or so you can imagine, like any uh, data store, like Dropbox, or or could be anything, and it can be plugged into this system because the security of the naming system only depends on the blockchain, and the data store is 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 there just for fetching data and nothing else. So as a as a one name user, when you go to one name and you register effectively what, what you consider yourselves to be a, a registrar, uh, as a user, where can I where can I find you know this transaction where this data store with my identity is effectively stored? We're actually going to be prov uh, providing a, a way for you to look this up. Uh, it's not currently on the site right now, but we're uh, going to put in the dashboard like a place where you can see the exact transaction uh, that's been registered via Blockstore. Uh, and also, if you actually want to register a name yourself, you can fire up a Blockstore node and you can issue uh, a name registration operation and you'll be able to get the name and, and send it to any key that you want. Um, so by installing a Blockstore node, you can look up a name and you can find the transaction uh, in, in which that, 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 that name was essentially registered. Yes, correct. And, and some uh, Bitcoin uh, explorers like uh, BlockCypher, they've already started uh, integrating uh, in more information on these transactions. So if you go, if you look up, let's say you wanted to get your transaction hash from Blockstore, and you see that this was the transaction in which it was registered, and then you look up the transaction details on a Block Explorer like BlockCypher, you would actually see that, hey, uh, they will give you information on, okay, this, this was a, uh, this is the op return data and this was the protocol that was 
they would actually even ident identify that this was this was the blockchain ID protocol. Uh, okay. And give you more information on it. And how does the block store client uh, differentiate uh, a name registration on the blockchain from any other transaction? Is there like a special, you know, prefix or suffix to the hash that Blockstore recognizes? Yeah, there's a prefix. Uh, it's ID. And then ID followed by a particular symbol that indicates the type of operation that is being performed, like a name registration, a name update, a name transfer, a namespace uh, creation or a namespace ready. And the client just looks at that prefix and interprets it. And if, it's, if the information afterwards is valid, then it'll accept it as a valid transaction. Okay, so you mentioned different operations. Can you uh, describe what the different operations are? Yeah, so it's, uh, as many uh, lightly touched on before, it's similar to the way that Namecoin works in that first you have to pre-order the name and you pre-order the name, you say, I'm registering a name, but I'm not going to tell you what name that I'm registering. Then you do a registration and you reveal the name that you registered before as well as a salt that was combined uh, with the name and hashed previously. And in, it, currently the salt is just uh, your, your actual uh, key, your, the key that's registering it. And then after you register it, you can do an update and you can associate a hash with your name. And that hash is the secure mapping that, from, uh, that, you, that is required to then uh, resolve uh, the name to the full data. Um, and then the other two things that you can do on a name are to, uh, to transfer the name. So if you want to move the name to another key, another uh, Bitcoin address, then you can do that and a name update. So each namespace has a certain time until expiration. And so like, let's say, for example, you choose a year, like uh, we have in the .id namespace. Uh, sometime before the year is up, you'd have to actually issue a name, uh, a name um, renew. And if you do a name renew, then you, you'll get to keep the name. And the importance of this is so that the high quality inventory or the very uh, very desirable human readable names uh, don't get don't get um, hoarded by people who don't actually intend to use them so each year you actually have to pay the original registration price to extend it for the next period um, and then there is a, there are also operations on a namespace so on a namespace you can define a namespace uh, and you basically put in the actual parameters that uh, that the that are applied to the namespace. So the time until expiration and the pricing rules for all of the character lengths and the pricing discounts that you get if you include a, a number or a symbol, for example. And then you can actually start uh, a uh, import process on a namespace. And in that, in that process, you could actually issue uh, names that are in all, that can only be issued by the namespace creator until the time that the namespace ready has been issued. And once namespace ready has been issued, the imported names have been completed and the namespace is now in the public domain and absolutely anyone can register names. The namespace creator no longer has any control or any um, ability to change the properties of the namespace. And now it's, now it's just completely free reign, just like uh, any registrar on 
a DNS, uh, ICANN DNS namespace would be able to um, only uh, register names first on a first come first serve basis. So, uh, who am I paying the fees to? So, when I register my name, you said I, I can pay fees and the name might expire in three months, for example, and to keep to renew my name, I might have to pay other fees. Who is the recipient of all this money? Currently, the, the money is being burned and sent to a burn address. Uh, just It's just the null address 0000. But we have plans to actually uh, transition that over to paying it as mining fees. Uh, so the way that that would work is with something like the uh, new operation opcheck lock time verify, where once that comes out, you'll be able to actually pay a fee to an unspecified miner at some point in the future. And so uh, that can't be gamed by a miner because they won't know whether it's actually them. Um, but we can't do uh, that currently without this without this new operation. So so basically, like your naming system also becomes an incentive scheme can also become an incentive scheme for miners in the future. That in apart from normal Bitcoin transaction fees, they can make money registering names. And if your system becomes popular, that kind of uh, helps Bitcoin transition away from completely paying miners by new Bitcoins to earning money using name registrations, right? Yes, absolutely, right? I think this was um, a big reason that once we were doing the, we were migrating to the Bitcoin blockchain, we wanted to play nice on the new ecosystem, right? So uh, using OpterTurn is the recommended way of building any data protocols on top of Bitcoin. Similarly, for incentives, it's very important that the miners have the incentive to actually process those transactions and uh, get some reward out of them. So there are two types of fees. Like the transaction fee has to be there for the Bitcoin transaction to get accepted. So miners have that incentive anyway because they can just process it as, as a normal Bitcoin transaction and just collect the transaction fee. And if, if there are a lot of transactions, yes, they are earning some money there. But on top of that, if there are more sophisticated rules of uh, because domain names you know are roughly like ten dollars each let's say someone builds uh, another namespace that has higher fees and those fees are also going to the miners then yes absolutely then they have added incentive to keep supporting the protocol and uh, help build the ecosystem yeah that's that would be really cool right like if if for example there might be like 1 million registrations in a year each making 10 dollars then that gives 10 million dollars in additional revenue to the miners in addition to let's say the 250 million dollars that they earned through senioraj today i mean that would be a really nice thing for the for the ecosystem as well so you you mentioned that um, when i register my name i basically associate a hash with that name and that hash maps to some data that I've put in some other system like S3 or IPFS or a DHT. Could you, could you explain what kinds of data would people want to put and uh, what are the options for putting the data in and what's the advantage of each? So, so basically, uh, right now the default is a DHT. Uh, all of the data is going to the DHT. And um, on the .id namespace, it's basically the data that complies to the schema that we talked about earlier for, for blockchain IDs and that describes your profile, right? And that's, that's just the very basic 
uh, it gives you the very basic mapping between the username and the profile that is rendered on like onename.com and you see you go and see your profile but this system is actually uh, a lot more sophisticated you can start putting your signed uh, pgp keys there you can start putting your signed uh, payment addresses and not just bitcoin ad uh, payment addresses they could actually be payment addresses for other services as well like venmo or paypal or something like that and you can also start and and this is public data right private data is a completely different opportunity where now you can start associating private data with your blockchain id and have be in complete control over who has access to that data right so let's say i just want to share something with you and only you and i don't trust any company in the middle uh if and you were storing that data on dropbox all Dropbox sees is an encrypted blob over there, right? And they have no visibility into what is actually that data. Um, but I can give you access to read that information by just saying that this blockchain ID has, has read access. And then the protocol would take care of like, okay, the, these, these, this blockchain ID maps to this public key, and I'm, 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 I'm going to give access to this uh, data like that. So that's that's like that's like more in the long term that we can slowly start building out the storage capabilities and the kind of applications that can be supported with it on on top. Uh, but right now the system is is much more simple. It's just public data that complies to the blockchain ID profile specifications, and and right now currently it just goes to the DHT. Let's take a short break and talk about Hi.me. Hi.me is a VPN provider. And if you don't know yet why you should need a VPN provider, let us help you. I'm sure you were like me and when all the crazy revelations came out during the Snowden time uh, of all the, the spying that is being done by the NSA and other government agencies, you were shocked and you said, not with me, not with my own rights. Now, the way government agencies can spy on you, there's many of them, but the most easiest way is by simply going to your ISP and getting all your traffic, capturing all your traffic. And the VPN can protect you from that. It can give you a secure tunnel from your computer to any of the exit nodes all over the world so that all your traffic goes to this secure pipe that's encrypted and cannot be intruded on. And with Hike.me, you can choose any of their, their 30 exit nodes all over the world so you can enter the internet in a secure location. The best thing about Hide.me is that they have a free plan, which includes two gigabytes of unthrottled bandwidth per month. So you can go to Hide.me slash Epicenter to create your free account. And when you use that URL, you'll automatically get 35% off if ever you decide to go premium. Now the premium plans are really great. They include unlimited bandwidth, access to all of the 30 exit nodes that Hide.me provides, and you can install it on up to five devices at a time. So you can have this running on your phone, your tablet, your computer at work, your personal computer, and just be completely protected all the time. And of course, Hide.me accepts Bitcoin. So we'd like to thank Hide.me for their support of Epicenter Bitcoin. So earlier, we, I mentioned we should talk about blockchain ID, but we sort of inverse the order, but uh, I think it's probably more logical like this. Uh, so blockchain ID, uh, is, is a schema for storing that data in a standard format in a DHT. Um, there's been different versions of that schema. I think we're now at, at version three. Uh, what, what, what does that look like? What, is, what does a blockchain ID document look like? And what, what types of information does it contain? 
Sure. So there are actually uh, there's various types of blockchain IDs that you could register. So what we're working with right now is just blockchain IDs for people. And we have currently a version, like you mentioned, version three of a schema for uh, blockchain IDs for people. And people can add other schemas. They can add uh, schemas for a blockchain ID for a company namespace, for example, or blockchain IDs for a namespace that's specifically designed for registering pieces of art or, um, or, or other types of, uh, of creative works. And uh, because OneName is a uh, personal identity company, we are focused on this schema, but uh, other companies can, can invest time in those other schemas. So the schema that we're actually working on right now, version three, is based off of the schema.org slash person schema. So schema.org is a um, is a site where it has uh, standard schemas for uh, almost anything that you can imagine. People, companies, events, things, tickets, transactions, whatever. Uh, it's meant to be a, uh, a uh, schema set that has been agreed upon by a bunch of different parties, uh, primarily search engines like uh, Google and Microsoft and Yandex, and they came together to produce a schema that could be useful for indexing, so that the search engines could, um, if you put it, if you put this schema in a particular web page, it would come out and look nice uh, when it's when it's being rendered, and all the search engines would know how to treat it the same way. So we wanted to base our schema after this, uh, on this because it's a standard that has been well thought out by. Uh, a lot of different parties, and uh, it's a lot of people have get, given buy-in to this schema, um, and so it uses this, and then it adds on a couple fields that um, that were not uh, present. But uh, the way that schema.org works is it's really extensible, so that you can write your own schema extension, you can superclass existing schemas, and then publish the recipe for those schemas, and any object can be checked up against that schema. Um, so there's so we have that actual schema and you can check it out. It's on it's on our GitHub under the blockchain ID documentation uh, on on the sorry on the block stack GitHub. And uh, beyond that, the actual the way that the profiles are stored is you take that schema um, for a person and you tokenize it. You split up all of the different fields, the different attributes, and you sign each field independently with a different key. And then each of those is its own distinct token. And then you take all those tokens and you string them together and a client can read them all and then reconstruct the profile uh, as long as it knows that all of those keys that signed the distinct tokens belong to the same blockchain ID. Now, the cool thing about this is that it's very privacy conscious, very, um, very, uh, very powerful for selective disclosure, right? For, for example, if you have all of your different pieces of information, you can sign, you can take the token where you signed your birth date and you can present it to a party when you're authenticating without revealing your blockchain ID. You just say, hey, I am this entity, this public key, and I am over 21. Here's, here's my self-attested statement, which has also been signed by, let's say, you know, in some point in the future, the DMV of New York, right? So I can send you that token that was signed by me, signed by the DMV of New York. And then you, a website, maybe Heineken.com or something, 
accept the token. You're like, oh, wow, this is a real person who's over 21. And uh, Heineken.com doesn't need to know who I am as a person. And later, actually, if I want, I can later prove that that public key that I logged in with is actually linked to my blockchain ID. Um, and the way that actually works is the blockchain ID, I've linked it earlier to a extended public key according to BIP32. And then I show the chain path to get from the master um, public key to the descendant child of a child of a child of a child public key. Um, and so that's a really, it's an interesting system for how we can take this schema for a person, we split it up, we tokenize it, and then you can selectively disclose individual tokens to reveal little select pieces of information about yourself. And then later you can reconstruct them and bring them back. And, uh, and then this also is, uh, this one supports tokens that you, uh, that you hide and you don't actually show until you log in. It also supports tokens where you've encrypted it, put it in the public, and then you encrypt it with keys that, uh, that you want to give access to. So that's really interesting. So then you could have, so in the schema, I'm, I'm looking at the GitHub page now. So we, you have like address, you may have their birthday, tax ID, um, people you know, different social media profiles. So it gives you a high level of granularity into what you disclose. So you may disclose to, for example, like your GPS, where you live and work, uh, or perhaps uh, like a delivery provider, uh, like DHL or, you know, that delivering a, a package to you, um, your address, but not your tax identification. And then on the other hand, you might want to disclose that information to another party and you have the ability to choose through tokenization what pieces of information you disclose. Um, the, the other thing that I find sort of interesting with the idea of these schemas is that you could foreseeably in the future have identities for other things than people, companies, or um, sort of the domain names. You could also have identities for physical things. So a um, an autonomous agent like a delivery drone or a vehicle could also have an an identity that is stored into the block in the blockchain. Yeah, I mean, also a really fascinating thing is that uh, the schema for the all the schemas are semantic. So uh, if you look in the person schema and you see works for field, so if you see works for, that refers to a list of organizations. And you'll see a type organization and then it's one name. So you can have a person linked to, a person identity linked to a company identity or an organization identity and say, hey, I work for uh, this company and the company can link to a list of people and say these people work for me the, the person can say I operate this drone as you mentioned um, and the drone can say I am owned by this person in this company so the semanticness uh, combined with the fact that the uh, there are the ability to have multiple namespaces that support multiple identity types actually makes this uh, really powerful so it's sort of supporting the idea of like I don't know if this exists, but it's like sort of proof of relationships between different parties. So one party links to another, uh, asserting that in what you mentioned as an example, that he, you know, someone works for a company. And then on the other hand, that company can say that, yeah, that person works for me. And then once that identity has been updated, say the person doesn't work for that company anymore, the company may update that information. And then 
like an ill-intended per- person could say, you know, I keep, I'm still working for that company, but because that link has been broken, someone who's looking at those identities would know that there's something wrong. Absolutely. And uh, I just want to quickly point out that this is like a quick reminder that this is all completely decentralized, right? So it's possible to do all of this without relying on any central third parties or any big companies in the middle. And uh, like that, that is the part that, you know, like truly fascinates me. Yeah. I mean, you could have a relational database that does all this stuff, but like doing this in a decentralized way is tough. Um, yeah. I mean, in the case that you're talking about, like a working relationship, that's a case where the validity of that statement is required to be validated by the two parties that are involved. So for us to prove that uh, for two people to prove that they know it, that a relationship exists, A has to say it knows B, B needs to say it knows A. Um, and for me to say that uh, I am, uh, I don't know, something that, that's just about myself that doesn't involve someone else, um, that only requires me. But then there's other types of relationships that might require third, three parties. So for example, if there was a transaction where um, there's a buyer, a seller, and, an, and a, um, a notary, or, then all three might have to sign, co- like co-sign to validate that that event actually occurred. Okay, so so one of the questions that comes to my mind is, um, so let's say I, I, I let's say let's say somebody somebody uh, somebody says that there's a there's a famous name like uh, I don't know Carl Icahn or Fred Wilson, and uh, somebody is conversing with me over, over the internet and he is claiming to be Carl Ikan and he he's, he shows me that he does own the Carl Ikan dot id name on 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 one name or or basically he owns that blockchain id how am i sure that i'm actually interacting with the with the real Carl Ikan or the real Fred Wilson right so i, w- I would say that I would say that uh, the username of, like that you get for your blockchain ID is actually not that important. Like just because you got the username Fred Wilson doesn't mean that you're Fred Wilson. It's a human readable identifier that you got, and now you can actually use that human um, readable identifier to attach other types of proofs that I am actually this person or this identity. Right. So this is the we start getting into the notion of a probabilistic identity. Uh, so taking Fred Wilson as an example, uh, when he got Fred Wilson, it could have been any person, right? But then he uh, used a proof on Twitter linking his uh, Twitter username that also happens to be Fred Wilson to the blockchain ID Fred Wilson. So now there's a two-way link that the blockchain ID is claiming that this blockchain ID also owns this this username on Twitter, and the Twitter is actually claiming that this the owner of this uh, Twitter username also owns this blockchain ID. So you can actually verify that, and this is the verification uh, that that we do before displaying that. Uh, th- here's a proof, and you can like start building on that, right? Like there you could be a, there could be a Facebook uh, verification, a GitHub domain name. So you know if Fred. Uh, basically verifies that he owns abc.com and with each additional proof that's why it's a probabilistic identity the probability that you're actually talking to the right person like starts going up a lot right because if for someone to actually at this point 
basically impersonate Fred Wilson, he would need access to his domain name, his Twitter account, his Facebook, and so on and so forth, right? And in the future, you can actually imagine that there could be companies like, for example, uh, Blockscore who do KYC checks, right? So they can actually sign a statement saying that this blockchain ID has the full name Fred Wilson, right? And we did a check, a check for that. And you can take this even a step further. And at some point, the DMV can have a blockchain ID and they can start signing statements about people as well. So, but that... So the, the, the probabilistic identity as it currently exists in, in a system like, um, like blockchain ID, where you don't have sort of the state, like a, a, the DMV, or um, being able to sign and saying that this person is actually who they say they are. Since we're relying on social media, you're dependent on the fact that that, that person is actually public on social media. If I have just like a username whatever and and my twitter account is like there's it's not really clear that it's me sebastian cuchillo behind the twitter account it's hard for for you to have pretty good probability that that person is actually who they say they are that is basically a requirement of keeping the system decentralized that the proofs have to be public because you don't want to rely on any central company that is actually vouching for a proof that, hey, yeah, I can see the proof even if you can't, or this person proved something to me, and you now you have to trust me that they proved it, right? Like the, all the proofs that are supported right now are public information. Anyone can just go, and there's actually a GitHub repository called Proof Checker, and anyone can run the Proof Checker uh, and verify that these all these all this information is public. There are two-way linkages between uh, these different types of identities. And this blockchain ID is linked to uh, all these different other social media accounts or uh, domain names. Right. So you, the, public, the, the proofs have to be public. But if, if my Twitter username is like, I love kitties, and <laughs> I'm, I don't use my own picture. Uh, I see Mira laughing there. Uh, and I don't use my own, my own picture. Uh, and I, I don't really, it, it's not really me. It's like some, some like ultra, ultra identity or alter ego. Some like my, my secret, I love kitties, alter ego. Um, how do you, how do you use that as a proof? You have to have yourself out there as, as, as a real person in order to prove that you're this blockchain ID. It depends what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, if your goal is to help other people know that they're actually viewing the right profile so that they can send you know either send you a message or send you a payment then you want to give them enough information that they need to uh, deem that profile uh, correct right for example if they're searching for you in the search bar uh, so if you have a public twitter account then you link your public twitter account if you have a facebook account uh, that or a github account or any of the other social media accounts that were going to be added you can add those. If you have a domain name that's somewhat like everyone really knows that you are associated with, Epicenter Bitcoin, right? Then you can link that domain name. Whatever pieces of information that you think other people will already know are associated with you, you can link those pieces of information. And then- So there has to be some sort of consensus around this piece of, of, of information 
belongs to this person and so does this one and so does this one. Yes. And then then you go a step further and then you get into uh, what many mentioned before with you have companies that can do uh, background checks on people and verify legal identity information uh, by going through the credit uh, bureau security questions and verifying that information. If one of those organizations that does one of those checks signs that information, then now you can present uh, this proof that you have um, that your legal name, that the name that is presented there has been vetted. Uh, so we're going to be adding that pretty soon. We're also going to be adding verification of your face, right? So we can um, you can have uh, you can show that this is who how I actually look in real life. And then at some point down the road, we'll be able to have organizations vouch for you, um, much more powerful than just domain names. So you can have your DMV vouch for you. You can have your bank vouch for you. You can have the Social Security Administration vouch for you. You can have your company vouch for you. You can have your neighbor vouch for you, right? So uh, in that sense, then once you have the DMV, the Social Security Administration, your bank, blah, 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 all these, all these entities vouching for your identity, it becomes really, really strong. So this sort of solves a, a problem that I've been thinking a lot about lately. Um, uh, you know, in, in with with private keys, it's pretty easy for you to sign something, say a document, and then prove that you signed that document if you can provide the public the private key. On the other hand, it's very hard for someone to prove that you own a private key unless you have a system like this where you can link that private key back to someone's identity. So essentially like this kind of solves that problem where like if you have two parties that come in and uh, sign the content of a document with their, with their private keys and maybe it's like a contract and then one of those defaults on the contract, you know, there's a lawsuit. Um, it's, it's, if they're using the, if they're using the key that was associated with an one name account, uh, and that was a requirement of signing the contract in the first place, it's pretty simple for uh, the other party to say, yeah, look, this is the one name account that was associated to that signature. This is the person, here are the proofs. And now we can we know that this is a person who signed that contract. Yep, absolutely. It it's actually provides a, there's this company that's trying to do a linkage between uh, smart contracts and legal contracts. and. In a sense, this provides that bridge. I, I would also like to point out something about the discussion about the verifications. Um, and going back to the your I love kitties example, that these blockchain IDs that are getting registered, they don't have to map to a real identity, right? Like I'm Munib, I have the blockchain ID Munib, but I also have the blockchain ID Darth Vader, right? And I can link it to, you know, a Darth Vader something Twitter account and uh, just use that anywhere online that I want to, there is still value in that because uh, let's say I've verified four different accounts on let's say Facebook, Twitter, GitHub and linked it to Darth Vader. Uh, a site can actually, I can still log in as a human because the sites know that I passed the spam protection of Twitter and Facebook and GitHub and I'm not a bot. I'm I'm a I'm a real person, and I can actually start building some sort of reputation around a pseudonym without revealing my real identity. Like for example, Satoshi Nakamoto is highly respected, and nobody knows who he is, 
right? So that, that, that pseudonym is actually very important and there, there will be a lot of applications and a lot of use cases for such blockchain IDs on, uh, online as well. Cool. Uh, yeah, definitely there'd be a lot of use cases for blockchain IDs. Like in the gaming world, eh, nobody uses their real name. So I guess that's that's really important. So like this really sounds cool because it seems to solve the thing that was attempted in the 90s, which was the web of trust, which was, I think, similar with people attesting that X, XYZ public key belongs to some person I know and uh, lots of people attesting this to each other and they're, therefore they're being an identity system. But I think one... Like the blockchain ID can do that much more elegantly, given that we have Bitcoin as a as a as a backbone system. So um, finally, we would like to ask about uh, Blockstack. What is Blockstack, and what do you intend to do with uh, with Blockstack? Right. So it's it's basically uh, like I can give you an example of uh, my background is that I I did a lot of work in uh, IoT. And they used to be called like sensor networks back then. And it was a new field, very exciting. Reminds me of, you know, how Bitcoin and blockchain is right now. And uh, at the very beginning, there were a lot of like competing protocols and standards. Like everyone was making their new uh, medium access control protocol. There were like 30 different standards when we needed one, right? And uh, there is similar stuff going on in the, in the blockchain space today that any company that is trying to build solutions on top, they would end up inventing a protocol, maybe it's using Opreturn, or they would end up implementing a DHT, uh, like you might be familiar with OpenBazaar, right? Like they are building a reputation system on top, they need some sort of an identity if, if you wanna uh, link it to a human readable name, and they need a, a, a DHT for, uh, for, for the data part of what they're doing. And if you look at like, a bunch of other companies. So we started noticing that there's a lot of overlap. Uh, all these companies, and the good thing about this community is that most of them are doing open source development. So the code is like in the public domain anyway. So it just makes sense to start collaborating and start working on common solutions uh, that can be reused by different businesses that are being built. So the analogy would be that uh, just like Bitcoin D is, uh, is an open source software and it is maintained by the core developers. Uh, but a lot of different companies like Coinbase, Circle, BitPay, they benefit from, from the, that open source technology. Right. So uh, we came uh, together with a bunch of other companies, uh, I think there are like 11 or 12 now, to discuss that how can we start collaborating under, under a same umbrella. And we came up with this community called Blockstack. Uh, and the idea there is that it's supposed to focus only on the open source software side. There is not going to be any uh, any political or business side of of, uh, of this community or organization. And we plan to register this as as a nonprofit foundation, which will own a lot of the the open source code base that is being developed. So single companies can come and go, uh, but the hope is that the foundation would still maintain uh, those different pieces of software and actually uh, uh, run them for 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 a long time. So this would include all these schemas, um, the the work that you have done on identity DHTs and other other kinds of open source projects. What what are what are all the projects that are part of the umbrella of Blockstack? You can take a look at the the GitHub, the Blockstack GitHub, which is GitHub dot com slash blockstack and you'll see all the projects that are up there 
Um, there is, there's block store, there's the blockchain ID uh, schema repo, there's, uh, the, there's registrars and resolvers that uh, work with block, uh, block store. There's a bunch of different Python and JavaScript uh, tools and libraries that people can use. Uh, and then there's also uh, other projects that other uh, people on the space are working on that uh, are going to be part of the Blockstack uh, GitHub as well. Cool, and we'll link uh, to, to that in the show notes. Uh, now, just to, it's, it's a little confusing because if, if you look up Blockstack, there's a company called Blockstack, and then there's Blockstack, uh, this community, so it's blockstack.org, uh, just not to, to be confused with the, with the other company called Blockstack. Um, so just before we wrap up, so we, we talked about all these open source uh, technologies and protocols and schemas that, that you guys are working on, and, and, and that's already great, but you guys have built a business on top of all this, which is one name, um, can 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 you just sort of explain like how one name fits in all of this, and perhaps you know, how one name intends to make money uh, uh, from from all this open source software? So it's basically uh, the analogy I gave earlier that uh, just like Coinbase is a is a business is a company, and uh, they're using the open source software and technologies uh, that you know Bitcoin. Uh, deed developed like similarly this ecosystem is more new at an earlier stage so one name is helping not only uh, building the company but also helping the open source uh, technology as well so we have actually open source a bunch of our uh, our code and we have uh, donated that to the uh, to Blockstack. so it's under the Blockstack copyright so that other companies can collaborate on that as well and uh, the the idea really is that that what we are trying to do is like so massive and so game changing that if decentralized systems like these take off, then there will be multiple businesses built on top. It, it's it's not going to be just one name. There there are there already are other companies that are you know collaborating under the Blockstack umbrella, and all those companies benefit, and they all of them would have like different business models. But right now, the most important thing is actually growing the ecosystem growing the overall ecosystem, maturing the technology, uh, having more deployments, and making the system useful in general. Uh, and, and then the next step after that would be uh, how different companies actually come up with their uh, business models. And Ryan can comment more on this as well. Yeah, so as Muneeb said, uh, we're really focusing on growing it for now. And that's, that's uh, what we're going to do for the foreseeable future. Uh, but then when it comes to us actually making money down the road, there's a few things that we can do. And one of them is to sell premium uh, or subscription-based versions of the open source and free software that we provide. Um, so if like, for example, we have uh, enterprise uh, features that aren't present in the, in the standard consumer versions. Uh, and then the other thing that we can do is actually provide, be like a stripe for identity and authentication and where we provide services for developers who want to build on top of our identity platform so that they can easily integrate identity and authentication uh, into their applications. Um, so those are both some very, um, the, the, those are the two things that we're actually focusing on, but uh, in the long term. But for now, uh, it's definitely about growing the ecosystem and making sure that this takes off and, and, and grows. And can you give us an idea of how many people have registered the blockchain IDs, uh, verified them, for example, like how, what, what type of user base are we looking at here? So it's about 35,000 and uh, we're actually, um, it's been steadily growing and 
we're actually working on coming out with a new product very soon, which we're very excited about. And that's our, uh, our Chrome extension for logging into websites. And so that's, uh, we're actually expecting that we'll kick it up a notch uh, once we come out with the Chrome extension. So that's a, a really, really uh, cool use case for the identities that people register on one name or with their own block store node or with another registrar. And uh, so, yeah, this is interesting. So you mentioned that you can use also, you, you can use your, your one name identity to log into a website. Um, what will be the compatibility there with like protocols like FIDO, uh, open standards, right? Like FIDO, which are attempting to do the same thing. So uh, we have actually been really interested in FIDO's uh, U2F and um, UAF, and uh, we're looking at integrating that at some point. Um, it's, uh, I, there's not much out there in terms of the UAF standards, in terms of implementations. Um, so I, I, I'd like to see it mature a little more, and uh, I think um, it may be a little too early for us to integrate and work with, um, but definitely uh, would be nice to, to be interoperable with those, those standards. Cool. Well, I mean, I, I think this is really interesting because the, the, the identity is a really tough thing to do if you don't have a, like a central authority to prove who you are. You know, traditionally, we've we've uh, relied on the state to do that, uh, and I think that you know, in this new age of the internet and decentralization, etc., I mean, we need to have ways to be able to provide our own identity that we control and that um, then then that uh, you know is is our own and is decentralized and crosses borders and etc. And I guess the, the, the next step uh, or the important milestone in order for this to become widely used is an important hurdle, which would be for this to be recognized by the law. Um, is there any jurisprudence uh, of like cases where this, I mean, I suppose not, but um, what, what, what's your view on sort of the legal aspects of um, of something like one name. I think my, so I had a discussion with uh, Congressman uh, Jared about this and the, and he's off the view that the governments are usually the last to adopt a new technology. So you would likely see it take off first in, you know, online users that people are just simply using it to log into websites without a password. And that's exciting, right? Like now, like you don't need to remember a password and you're not dependent on Facebook for actually uh, logging into a website. And then you can slowly start building on it that there would be enterprises that might start integrating it. Then there might be banks and then there might be states. And then finally, eventually the last leg uh, would be like federal governments who start integrating a technology like that. But in order for it to, so not necessarily the integration, but let's say in the example of the you know, signing a contract, which I mentioned earlier, if two people were to sign a contract with their keys and you know, there's, um, uh, you know, they, they go to court because for whatever reason, well, how, do, you, do you think that this would be recognized as a valid way to sign a document, knowing that you know, we have, I, in my opinion, much less secure ways of signing documents? Like I think in Europe, all you need to do is like, check a box online if it's linked to your IP address, like you basically attest that it's as good as a signature. Um, what, what's your view on that? I, th I think that would, uh, that will definitely be accepted at some point. And it's just a matter of one judge or court uh, 
ruling on it as like the, an acceptable form, and then boom, you have the precedent set, and then all the other courts will follow suit. Um, so I think it'll probably it's something like popcorn, where you just put it in the microwave and one kernel will pop, and then the rest will just go. Um, so I, yeah, I, I haven't exactly looked into the into the court history there, but I, I would assume that if there is the need for some type of evidence and uh, on who signed a document and they actually someone presents this as evidence and that's the only proof that that's available and they actually uh, are able to do the vetting and make sure that the person did have control of that private key, then I would think that it's, uh, you know, a judge that does really understand what's going on would actually accept it and then you'd start to see um, it really taking off there. Um, and, and then I think the other thing is, uh, yeah, it's going to take some time for governments to actually accept it as a valid form of ident identity. Uh, but there are some bright spots. Uh, there's some nice things that are actually happening. Uh, one thing is the e-residency in Estonia, for example, um, where anyone around the world can get their own, uh, their own Estonian e-residency. And uh, there's also, a, a, I think, two states in the United States that are working on digitizing driver's licenses. So that at least shows that there are a lot of, a lot of government organizations are thinking about this. And so they might be, um, it's possible that certain ones will be receptive to it uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah, that's a great example. The e-residency, so for those who don't know, is uh, so Estonia, is, I'm pretty sure that's what they do. So they issue a a public and private key to every citizen of this e-residency program. So you have an Estonian ID with um, with a public and private key embedded in it. So perhaps, you know, in 10 years, it, this would be generalized in the EU, for example, where like every European country, you would have a public and private key in your in your ID, which would allow you to go vote and do certain things you know, at the, at, uh, with the state, and that kind of thing. Um, and another use case I was thinking of for this is um, the ability to encrypt data. So, for example, if you log into a website using your one name ID, um, uh, you could use your public your 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 publicly to uh, to encrypt the data and your private key to decrypt it, so that the service, although it's decentralized, uh, wouldn't have access to your data. Like, so you could log into Facebook and all your messages would be encrypted, and you, you would hold the key with your one name account. Yes, absolutely. I think this this is one of the biggest use cases that um, I'm personally very excited about. And the idea over there is, um, if you if you look at um, history of computing, we kind of keep it, it's like a pendulum. It keeps going from central to decentral, back to central, back to decentral. Like the the initial mainframes, like those large computers, were very centralized and and then people started having, uh, with personal computers, you know, it kind of got decentralized. And then you got these uh, data centers, and now your laptop is almost like a dumb terminal. Like, like all your data is in a data center with a company, and they, they can do anything with that data. Uh, so one of the, the applications that you're mentioning is kind of like people can start bringing their own data with the applications. Your data is in your control and uh, you use them on need basis. So, so you start relying less on the centralized data centers that Facebook or Google or other these companies have built out in the past five, five to 10 years. And you kind of like start taking control back. And, and the application developers, if, when they start integrating this technology and start building their applications in this way, they would 
be actually writing data to a user's drive, the, like, like a, a storage device that is under control of the user and not uh, keep all that data themselves. And another nice property that that has is, uh, let's say that uh, you, you start using a service and it's a startup and then it disappears in two years and all of your data is now suddenly gone because the data was not with you. The data was actually stored with the company. And it's, it's not like that that company was trying to be evil is just that this is the current model of building applications, right? And if, if, if we flip the model and there's a startup and you were using them and then they disappear, you don't care anymore because you, you still have your data and maybe some other service can use the same data format and give you a similar service as well. Okay, well, uh, this is a really fascinating discussion. I'm really excited that we were able to get you guys on and um, I'm definitely gonna play around with, uh, with this block store demon uh, to, to try to like, you know, make some identities, you know, confirm them with like Twitter accounts and stuff like that. So looking forward to that. Uh, so right in uh, Muneeb, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for, Thank having, you for having us. So that's it for today's show. Uh, we do episodes of Episode of Bitcoin every Monday and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. It could be a, a podcatcher app on iTunes or uh, on uh, iOS or Android. Uh, you could also watch the video version of the show on uh, YouTube at Episode of Bitcoin. Sorry, no, at youtube.com slash Episode of Bitcoin. I'm not used to doing this. This is usually Brian. It's kind of weird. Um, and uh, of course, if you're a loyal listener, if you like the show, uh, and uh, many of you have done this you can go to uh, iTunes and leave us an iTunes review and if you do that and if you send us an email at show at epicenterbitcoin.com to say I left you a review we will send you a free t-shirt that's right we're bribing you for reviews so go ahead and do that and uh, of course uh, you can always send us a tip and you can do that and the, uh, the tipping address is in the show description so uh, thanks again for listening and until next time